welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. 2 Samuel chapter 18 today, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, I am excited to see everybody. Man, it's getting to be springtime, and you know what? As many of us as there are here, there's going to be two or three people walk in at the end of service time. How many of you guys missed that hour of sleep last night? Just me? Okay, yeah, okay. There, this side of the church, you guys are okay, but this side of the church is struggling this morning. Uh, We are going to continue in our Thirsty for God series looking at David. Uh, when I was about fifth or sixth grade, I, I remember going, you know, I had several different churches that we had attended growing up, and, and I do remember bits and pieces of different pastors I've sat under, and sometimes it's just the smallest, silliest thing that I have no point what the pastor was trying to say, but I did grasp that story, or I remember that moment, and I remember one, Pastor, pastor Mitch was telling a story one time, and I couldn't get the gist of the whole sermon, but I got this out of it. I left there feeling like pride was bad, and so I just kind of, you know, assuming the pastor knew what he talked about, I assumed, well, pride is bad. So I just went out into the world, not even knowing what pride was, but knowing it was bad. Imagine my confusion the very next day when I went to Miss Barker's class and on her window of her door, she had a sticker that said Southerner Pride. Now, as a little, I think I was fifth grade at this time, as a fifth grader, I had like this internal conflict about what's wrong here, because I knew Pastor Mitch wasn't about to lead me wrong. He's not going to tell me that, that pride is bad when it's good, but I also knew Miss Barker, she's not going to lead me wrong either. And so I couldn't justify between myself, between these two different stories and what pride is. And I was so very confused. And it's taken me a long time in life to move past that confusion. I would love to tell you that I've matured to the point where my mind doesn't fight over small details like that, but that's just my mental makeup, I think. But as I've matured and understood what, what the pastor was talking about when he was talking about pride and the difference in saying something like I have pride in my school, as I understand the differences in those things. I understand more about God's word and I understand why those things are not exactly the same. You see, we use the word pride, like many words in the English language, to describe two things that are close to each other but not exactly the same. In a just pure definition sense, the word pride means a a sense of accomplishment in something that I or we have done together. It's just the sense of accomplishment that I'm, I'm proud of that. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you that 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 definition of pride is unbiblical or that that's incorrect or that we shouldn't be that way. It's okay to have a sense of accomplishment. We've been working on projects at my house this way, and I found myself this morning just a little late to church because I had to stand at my back window and just stare at my new deck for a little bit. And I was just so proud of what we had done and what we had built. And and I realized I've got to go put clothes on and get ready for church because I can't just stand here and look at it all day. But, But that's different than the sense of pride that the Bible talks about. See, when the Bible talks about pride, it's not talking about a sense of accomplishment, that I'm proud that we did this together. I'm proud that our church gave to missions. I'm proud that we worked through this problem together. The sense of pride in the Bible talks about when we allow that sense of accomplishment to grow up a little bit and it becomes, I'm better than somebody else. Nobody else could have built that deck like we built it. Nobody else can do what I do at church. Nobody else is as good as me. And everybody knows that when we look in the mirror, we all think we're the best looking person in the room, right? And so that sense of pride is what the Bible talks about when it's talking about pride. Is, is we're talking about the difference between a sense of accomplishment and a sense of supremacy. 
And our society loves the second part of that, don't they? Our society loves a sense of supremacy. Our society loves to think, I'm better than you for so many different reasons. I would ask you, can you think of a single TV show that does not have the one token narcissistic character? That they're always self-assured, that they're, they're always going to do what they think is right, they're always going to look out for themselves, and, and they tend to be people's favorite character because we're drawn to that sense of pride and that sense of narcissism and that, that sense of being better than others. We, we've entered a society where we worship the powerfully self-obsessed. And when the Bible speaks of pride, it speaks to me and you to ignore that culture around us, to, to not take part in that society around us in the sense of thinking, I'm better than you because of the church I go to, or I'm better than you because of how I work, or I'm better than you because my accomplishments are more than yours. It's, it's a dangerous problem that we get into. Because without a doubt, when we start thinking, I'm better than, I'm a harder worker than, I do more than, the next step is start to think is, I deserve more than. In the sense of finding and getting what I deserve is, is engulfing. Like we, we just, we tend to spend our life thinking about, well, if I do this, I deserve more. I deserve more say at church because I work harder at church. I deserve a raise because I work better than people at work. I, I deserve. And that's a dangerous ideology for this because when we focus on our glory and we start thinking about what we deserve, we, we miss the point of being able to look at God's glory and focus our lives on what he deserves. Now, I want to be clear this morning. I'm not just saying that pride is wrong. It's more than wrong. Pride is dangerous. And I will use that word again and again and again. Pride is dangerous. And if you don't believe me, take a proverb for it. I've always viewed the book of Proverbs as like science. Science is just an observation of how God made the world. That's when we study science, that's all we can do with science is observe how God made the world. And I think Proverbs reveals to us how God made the world. It's just an observation about how God made things. And listen to what the book of Proverbs says about pride. It says, pride leads to destruction. This is our first take-home truth is pride will cause you destruction. Pride will cause you destruction in your life. Pride will cause destruction in your marriage and in your family. Pride will cause destruction in your job. And pride will cause destruction in your church. And I want us to remember that. Like write that down on a post-it note and put it up on your refrigerator. Or put a reminder in your phone to pop up once a week that just says pride leads to destruction. I think we need to start doing social media with hashtagging that. Like we always hashtag a selfie of ourselves. Hashtag uh, fearfully and wonderfully made. Hashtag I can do all things through Christ. I think we need to start adding that to social media like hashtag pride leads to destruction. That's not an that's not a, 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 um, encouraging verse, but it's true. We need to remind ourselves of it is, is that pride will lead us to destruction. And so what we see here is that the world's message and the biblical message about pride are two different things. Because the Bible says that you're going to assure yourself of a destruction. You're, you're going to break if you're prideful. But the world tells us that pride is the way we get to success. By fighting for what we deserve, taking more than others, by, by seeing ourselves as better. And we see this biblical message coming true in the story of David. David begins the story that we've been in for the past several weeks with a prideful heart. He looks out over his kingdom and he's surveying everything that he has, probably nothing wrong with that, maybe a sense of accomplishment, a, a sense of respect, 
But then he, he sees a woman named Bathsheba, and, and I love to define David like this. He goes into what I call caveman thinking. It's, it's me king, me take. And what that comes from is a heart of pride where David, as king, says to himself, I'm the king, I deserve this. I'm the king, I'm above everybody else, I can break the rules. He has this sense of supremacy. And I can tell you that David was focused on his glory because if he had been focused on God's glory, he would have never made this mistake with Bathsheba. See, David could have looked out across the city and saw Bathsheba, and he could have focused on God, in which case he would have thought about the physical barriers that God creates between men and women. If he had been focusing on God's glory, he could have praised God for the structure and the covenant of marriage, knowing that Bathsheba was married and said, you know, that woman is attractive, but she's married, and God, your creation of marriage is better than anything I could come up with. He could have focused on God's glory by seeing Bathsheba and viewing her as a human made in God's unique image with feelings and rights. But that's, that's not what Dave did, David did. David looked at Bathsheba and, and what he saw is, I'm the king, who's gonna stop me from taking this woman? And the rest of the story that we've been studying is his punishment for that as his pride has caused his destruction. It's caused the destruction of his kingdom as, it, as it's engulfed in a civil war. It's caused the destruction of his family as his son pridefully tries to take over David's place as king. It's caused David the destruction of his home as he's now on the run out across the desert, running from Absalom who is trying to kill him. And we've been reading through the story of David running from the desert, and it's been like the old literary plot line. You guys remember English class would make you draw that plot line? Like the story starts out slow, and it builds, and it builds, and it builds, and then there's like the last moment, the final battle. And the story has been building towards the final battle between David and Absalom. We know it's going to be an epic battle. The Bible's going to speak about it for at least like six chapters of this battle that's going to happen between David and Absalom. And we focused on last week as David is preparing for this battle, the emotional agony he's in. You see him crying out to God, God, and I'm too weak. God, why have you abandoned me? God, I can't do this. Crying out to God because of his lack of food. And that's where we'll pick up today as, as we look at the battle. 2 Samuel 18, this is chapter, uh, verses 6 through 8. So the people went out into the field against Israel and the battle was in the wood of Ephraim. That's where we ended last week. When the people of Israel were slain before the servants of David, or where the people of Israel were slain before the servants of David, and there was a great slaughter in the day 20... Let me try that again. And there was there a great slaughter that day of 20,000 men. For the battle was scattered over the face of all the country, and the wood devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. I love how we've been building to this battle for weeks, chapters telling the story, and the Bible records the battle in two verses, and, and David's army went out and won is basically what it says. But th this story tells us a lot about pride as we look at how this battle begins. There's two significant parts we need to focus on that the Bible has already told us. Number one, as we go into this battle, Absalom is in the battle. And if we look back a couple weeks, well, you may remember that that was because one of David's spies, Hushai, had convinced Absalom that he needed to lead the army. How did he do that? He appealed to Absalom's pride. Absalom, you could attack David now, but you need a big army. And when you get a big army like that, who could lead it but you? Nobody's going to be as smart on the battlefield as you. The soldiers will fight for you like they've never fought for anybody else. Absalom, you have to lead the soldiers into battle. And because of Absalom's pride, 
He's led into battle and he is going to be in the battle. The other main point is that David is not in the battle. As David prepared his soldiers, much, much less than Absalom had, as David prepared to go into battle, he told his commanders, he said, I'm going to go into battle with you. David was a fighting man. He, he, was, not u- or he was used to warfare. He was used to battle. He said, I'm going in with you. But listen to this. His advisors told him, no, David, we don't need you out there. You're, you're better suited in the city. And maybe if we need reinforcements, maybe you can lead reinforcements. But David, you stay out of the battle. These are people underneath David, and they're telling him, David, don't. Don't go to battle. And David was humble enough to accept what his commanders told him. So we have Absalom is on the battle or on the battlefield because of his pride, but David is off of the battlefield because of his humility. And we know looking at this is that David should lose. He's got the smaller force by far. I'm going to estimate, and this is just a guess based on a couple of biblical things, David might have an army of three to 5,000 people. And the reason I say that is the, the Bible tells us that he appointed leaders over the thousands and he put three leaders over different thousands. So maybe 3,000-ish people. And we know that Absalom is coming with an army at least, at the very least, bigger than 12,000 people, probably twice that size or three times that size. And so we're going into this battle and we're expecting David's going to lose. He's done. That's the end of it. The battle's going to be over. It's going to be, you know, some kind of miracle or something, or David's lost. And in two verses, the Bible just kind of puts out there, David, David wins. David's small, unprepared force wins this larger battle. Records 20,000 ca- uh, casualties, and the way the Bible's written tells us that those are probably mostly Absalom's. How did that happen? How did an inferior, smaller force that's been on the run, that's been lacking food and water, how did they take over this great army that Absalom had put together? Well, it turns out the scripture tells us that David had some help. Back to verse 8, listen to what it says. And the wood, that means forest, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. So what this tells us about this particular battle is nature rises up and fights for David. Now, when I say that, I've got like this vision in my head. When I say something that, that drastic, I've got this vision of like the trees, you know, becoming humans and punching people. That, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the circumstances of fighting in the forest favored David. And for some reason, they disproportionately affected Absalom's army to David's army. The Bible doesn't say exactly, but traditionally, this has always been believed that the soldiers of Absalom got lost, that they fell off cliffs, that they got bogged down, that things would fall out of trees and fall on them, and that the animals would uncharacteristically attack Absalom's army. The forest fought for David. And if you want to know why, we've got to ask who. Why would the forest fight for David? We've got to ask, well, who controls nature? I seem to remember a story of a man, and he, he was a, asleep on a boat, and a great storm came up, and, and all of his friends went back there and woke him up and said, why are you sleeping? We're fixing to die, and you're back here taking a nap, and, and this man named Jesus stands up, and he talks to the weather, and the weather ceases immediately. Jesus, as the Son of God, had power over nature. I seem to remember another story of a guy named Moses with the power of God flowing through him. He commanded by the power of God that the Red Sea be split open and there were walls of water on either side. God's power has the power over nature. And so what we see in this story is that if the forest is fighting for David, that tells me that God is fighting for David. Think back to what we've looked at at David, especially over the last three to four weeks. 
How many times has David sat down, tears running down his face, and he cried, God, why have you abandoned me? God, where are you? God, God, I need your help. Why aren't you here? God, why am I alone? And what we see in this battle is, is David was weak, but he was never forgotten. David was scared, but he was never abandoned. God was with him the entire time. So we see in this battle that God took sides with David and fought against Absalom. But why? We tend to read the story of David and go, David's the hero. He always wins. Like, he's the good guy, and in movies, the good guys always win, so David must always win. But why did, why did God take David's side? And, and biblically, there's no guarantee to David that God's going to be on his side. There's nothing that says that David can't live in exile, living the rest of his days running through the desert. There's nothing that says that can't happen to him. So, so why did God pick David's side, but not, not Absalom's side? What is it that caused God to come fight for David against Absalom? James 4, 6 says this. It says that God is opposed to the prideful, but gives grace to the humble. And we see that in our story today. We see that in our story with Absalom. Absalom, very proud. He looks in the mirror. He sees this towering bit of a man. He thinks, I should be king. I should have the throne. I should have all of these things. Very prideful. I deserve, I deserve, I deserve. And we see David, but, but not the same David that took Bathsheba. We see a David that over the process of what's happened is different we see a David that, that relies on mercy. We see a David that cries out to God and relies on him day, daily. We see a David who has repented of his sins and turned away from these things. We see a David who is open to correction from his own commanders and from people who hate him because he says, maybe God's speaking through them to me trying to correct him. We see a David who is deeply, deeply humbled. And so the Bible says this, if God is opposed to the prideful but gives grace to the humble, I think we could say that in this story, God is opposed to Absalom but gives grace to David. Our next take-home truth is this, is that pride invites God to oppose you. Humility invites God to fight for you. And, and there's a lesson here. This is more than a verse. This is, this is not just something that God put in the Bible because that sounds good because it talks about pride being bad and humility being good. We see in practice what God promised in his Bible, that God opposes the proud but gives grace and fights for the humble. And last week we talked about the fact that many of us are facing battles. I hope that nobody in here is preparing an army to fight a family member like David was, but, but we have our own battles this week. We've got sin battles that we are all going to deal with where we're scared that we may fail or a sin may creep back into our life. We, we have professional battles. This is going to be a hard week at work because I've got to deal with this employee or I've got to deal with that coworker and things are going to be different. I've got a, I've got a professional battle coming this week. We have relational battles as, as we fight for our marriages and we fight for our kids' well-being as parents and we fight for our friendships. We, we've got these battles that are in front of us for different things. And, and looking at the Bible, I think it's dangerous for us to go into a battle of any kind thinking, I can do this. I deserve to win, so I will. I've got this one in hand. What the Bible teaches is that when we walk through the world like that, with this sense of pride, it's inviting God to oppose us. I'll speak to that as a pastor. 
As a pastor, there's been times in my ministry where I've thought, hey, I can do this. I've got this figured out. I'm smart enough to do it. And every time I go into a battle in leadership, every time I come up to something that I'm going to try to fix or do, every time I do it and I do it on my own strength, it fails. Because God opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. So instead this week of going into these battles with the sense of I can do it, or I can overcome this, or I'm good enough, or I'm smart enough, or I'm strong enough. It's dangerous for us to go in with that mindset. We have to go in with the mindset of, I'm not gonna win this. And with this deep sense of humility, ask God to fight our battles for us. Ask God for the grace that we need for these battles. And if we do this, this is what the story tells us. Even nature's response is on the table. I don't wanna be dramatic, but that is from the Bible and David's story. Even nature's response is on the table when we go into battle with humility. And we, we see this in the story of God opposing the proud and, and God fighting for the humble. And we see this with Absalom. Absalom, remember, he rode into the battle and he rode into the battle because of why? Because of his pride. Listen to what happens to Absalom in chapter 18, verse nine here. Then Absalom met the servants of David and Absalom rode upon a mule, and the mule went under a thick uh, bows of the great oak, and his head was caught in a hold of the oak, and he was taken up between heaven and earth, and the mule was under him, went away. So here's what happens to Absalom. He's in the forest. He's in the midst of the battle. And the way I read this, he, he comes in and he sees a bunch of David's warriors, and he thinks, I've got to get out of here. Riding a mule, he takes off. Remember how the Bible has been so clear about Absalom's long, flowing hair? how important that was to him. As Absalom's riding away, his hair gets caught up in the branches of a tree. And as he's going right through there, the mule runs off with him with his hair caught up and he's just left hanging there by his head. He's not dead. He's just hanging there. Nature fighting against him and fighting for David. And so as he's sitting there, some of David's soldiers see him. They've got the opportunity to end this. Here's, here's the leader of the insurrection. Here's the guy in charge of all the problems we have, and they have the opportunity to kill him. But in the back of their head rings what David said at the beginning of battle. Don't kill Absalom. And so they leave him alone, and they go and they tell Joab, David's top commander, verses 14 through 18. This is what Joab says when hearing this. Then said Joab, I may not tarry thus with thee, and he took three darts in his hand and thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was yet alive in the midst of the oak. And ten young men that bare Joab's armor compassed him and smote Absalom and slew him. And Joab blew the trumpet and the people of Israel, or people returned from pursuing after Israel, for Joab held back the people. And they took Absalom and cast him into a great pit in the wood and laid a very great heap of stones upon him. And all Israel fled, every one to his tent." And we've got something to deal with here is Joab hears about this. David's top commander. Joab hears about this and he goes, well, why didn't you kill him? And then the soldier says to Joab, well, I, didn't, I don't want David mad at me. This, this is the king's son. Yes, he's, he's trying to take over the country, but I wasn't going to kill him. And, and Joab, against David's wishes, he goes, and while Absalom is hanging in the tree, I kind of have this picture of him just sitting here waiting by this point. He goes and he takes three spears and he throws them into Absalom's body. Now, we don't really have time to, to mess with what, was that right or was it wrong because it was probably the right move, but it was also wrong because David told him not to. But the purpose of this is Absalom is dead and they pull him down and they bury him in a shallow grave. Now, this is not what Absalom pictured. 
Absalom had this view of what life would be like. If you continue reading in that story, it tells us that Absalom had built for himself a monument, a pillar that he was going to be buried at. And we've got a picture coming up of it. If you go to Israel to this day, this is known as Absalom's tomb. It's not where he's buried. But for over a thousand years, and probably over a couple thousand years, this has been believed to be the pillar that Absalom built. His burial place, a memorial to his greatness, a memorial to his pride. You can still go there to this day. And you have to think, when Absalom had this built, that, that he was sitting here thinking, when people walk by this, they'll see this, this great place that I'm buried, and they'll always remember, how great was I? They'll always think about how great of a leader and a king and how I took over the kingdom and how I stole it from David and how good I was and how good-looking I was. It'll be a memorial to how great I am. I deserve a memorial like that. But that's not how Absalom's remembered. Absalom's body never makes it to the burial place. It's thrown in a shallow grave, lost in the middle of a great forest. And to this day, if you visit Absalom's tomb, this tomb that was supposed to be a place that was a monument to his greatness, it's really quite the opposite. It's a monument to his failures. It's tradition that when you pass Absalom's tomb that you pick up a small stone and throw it as your way of showing disdain to Absalom and what he did to David. To this day, people take their children to Absalom's tomb and it's a tradition to teach your children the pitfalls of pride and the pitfalls of going against God by taking them to the tomb and telling them the story of Absalom's failure. What Absalom did pridefully to make himself, to make himself remembered, to make people remember him, to memorialize himself, has become a picture of his failure. It's become a picture of his destruction. The destruction that the Bible promises us when we are prideful. So the story's over. That's all. The battle's over. Absalom is dead and buried. All of Absalom's forces are retreating and running. That is, the ones of them that are still alive. David is the king. The story's over. Except for one thing. Who's going to tell David that his son just died? Who's going to walk up to the king who has power over everything and tell him, we killed your boy? Two messengers are sent out to, to dispatch to David and they go different routes and David's waiting in this city and he's standing above the gate and he's watching the road waiting for news and at this time messengers literally ran with a message and they relayed it verbally. And so David's sitting there and he sees a man running, he recognizes him, it must be good news, here he comes, he's gonna tell me something good and the guy comes up to him and he's puffing and puffing, <gasps> David, we won, you're the king, it's over, they're running away, the armies are running away, we can go back, you can take your palace, you can sit on the throne, God has taken care of us and, and David has one question what about Absalom do you know where he's at and, and the first messenger says sir I don't know I, there was a lot of turmoil when I left I just I just know that we've won and David doesn't say anything back and about that time here comes the second messenger he's David hey glory to God you are still the king we won how exciting is this no more desert no more doing without food David we won and, and David asks one question one question. What about Absalom? Read with me verses 32 and 33 of chapter 18 here. And the king said unto Cushai, this is the second messenger, is the young man Absalom safe? And Cushai answered, the enemies of my lord the king and all that rise against thee to you to do thee hurt 
be as that young man is. What, what he tells him is, I hope that everybody who ever does anything wrong to you dies like your son just did. Listen to David's response. And the king was much moved and went up to the changer over the gate and wept. And as he went, thus he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would God I had died for thee, O Absalom, my son, my son. And so we have this moment of the end of the battle. This should be a jubilant occasion. The battle is over. The traitor is gone. The civil war is ended. And David is the king. But with that, David realizes the loss of his third son. The third of his sons he loses. And at this point, we have to ask, was, was Absalom really his son? Absalom who, who murdered another one of David's children? Absalom who tried to steal the kingdom from David and spread lies about him. Absalom who took David's wife from David. Absalom who tried to kill David. And you're going to tell me that David still loves him? You're going to tell me that, that David is going to cry over the loss of this son? Why? Because David is still a father. And the love of a father doesn't care about rebellion. Even the rebellion of a child can't change the love of a father. And God is revealing to David two things in this whole story. Number one, he's revealing to David the hurt of being rebelled against. We've seen David's problems. We've seen him cry out. We, we've seen the hurt that he's carried as we've looked at the Psalms that he wrote this time. But God reveals to David something deeper God reveals to David the never-ending love of a father, no matter the rebellion of a child. And so what God reveals to David, he also rebels to, or um, what God reveals to David, he also reveals to us. Reveals to us the hurt of God when we rebel against him and the never-ending love of God for us even when we do. See, we like to look at this story and we like to put ourselves in the place of the hero. We like to think, I'm David. I, I'm after God's own heart, just like David was. I would have fought that giant knowing that God was with me. I could sing songs like David sang songs. I could be David, but you and me were Absalom. We're individuals who have proudly rebelled and rejected the king of the universe because we decided in our lives we want to be the king. And just as David was hurt, God is hurt by our rebellion. But David never quit loving Absalom. God never quit loving David. And God has never quit loving me and you. In this story, David defines, defines a father's love. At the end of this, he's heard crying as he runs away, tears running down his face. My son, my son, Absalom. And this is what he says. If only I had died instead of you. David understands that this is a result of his pride, that the turmoil in his family, God told him, this is because of your pride and what you did and the sin you committed with Bathsheba and killing her husband. David understands that. David understands that the destruction of Absalom is because of his own pride as well, that Absalom brought this on himself. But even understanding that a father's love says this, it says, I would take your place. I would take your punishment for your pride. Because that's how a father loves and so the story tells us more than a story of a king and a son who had a civil war long ago. 
The story tells us about God's love. Our last take home truth is this, is this story reveals more about God's, or reveals more than God's willingness to fight your battles. It reminds us that God has already fought your biggest battle. See, God's love says to us that though you rebel, I still love you. And we've all rebelled against God and the, and the root of all of our rebellion is pride. But in that moment, God himself, Jesus Christ, God in human form, he said to you, I take your punishment. I take your consequences. And all of the destruction that we earned was put on Jesus Christ on a cross. Revealing his amount of love for us. Though we broke his heart, he says, if only it was me who was punished. Live if you want to come up here. And this morning, we have an opportunity to assess our prideful hearts, our sense of superiority, our want to be king, our rebellion against God. And we have the opportunity to turn away from that and run into the arms of a loving father who says, I take your punishment for you. I take your consequences and I take your destruction away from you. And this morning, if you consider yourself a follower of Christ, we all have that ability to look into our lives and say, I've got to stamp out the pride in my life. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and, and you've, never, you've never received by faith, you've never received God's love. You've never taken advantage of his love for you that he took your destruction. And it's time for you, it's time for you to cry out to God. And the only thing, the only thing that would ever stop you from crying out to God and accepting him by faith is pride. Pride that says, I don't want him to be king in my life. But remember this, is that Pride will lead to your own destruction. <laughs>